was a time of great turmoil, a time of economic uncertainty, an era of haunting memories of those lost so recently. It is a time more than ever when we look to sport, to entertainment, to create heroes. But no, that time isn't today, this month, or even this crazy year. The time is a century ago. Emerging from a war to end all wars, a pandemic not seen to the world in centuries, and the biggest economic collapse in global history, a new world was created. A world of sports, a world of entertainment, all in the name of creating heroes on screen, heroes on the field, even heroes on the horse track. At Indianapolis, this new world would give rise to one of those heroes. But of course, this is dinner with racers. We could focus on the hero that this great race created, but instead, we're focusing on his boss, me. The Businessman. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder radio And welcome back to another edition of Dinner with Racers. I am Sean Heckman, and uh, allegedly sitting next to me is... I'd be Ryan Eversley sitting directly next to you, and you smell fantastic. We're clearly sitting right next to one another. Uh, and uh, if you didn't know already, we uh, well, we have a television show. Isn't that is that the rumor on the street? That is what the kids are saying. Uh, I do want to point out that we are sitting six feet apart while talking about our TV show on prime video and you can watch uh, fun nifty things that we decided that would be worth our time and continental's money and uh well we're gonna do it again aren't we sean so for uh season two we had a little bit of an abbreviated schedule i don't know if anyone paid attention to the news this year but um we were we were a little bit challenged as to when we could go out and how we went out and as things started to change back in june ryan and i kind of uh talked to each other and said all right we got we got about six weeks to get as much as we can get done before the racing schedule picks up. So this is the uh, outcome of a 15,000 mile trip that we did in an exhausting six weeks. One of the most interesting things about this trip, I would say, would be seeing how the entire country was handling the pandemic, how COVID was affecting all the different travel things that we had to go through. And then of course, being able to safely and responsibly interview people about all the interesting things that we find in motorsports. So this is the first of uh, two podcasts uh, that's really spotlighting one of our television shows that again, you can find on Amazon Prime. Uh, this is the story of Mike Boyle. So here's, here's how this story came about. Um, when everything changed for us, we had a bunch of plans for what we wanted to do this year. That all went out the window. And as we started to gear up and realize, okay, we've got this month of June to do whatever the heck we can, uh, we started looking at stories from the past 
to try and find something maybe relevant to today. So when was there a point where the global economy was in trouble, where the world was recovering from the pandemic or from other issues? And we, we looked to the 1920s and 1930s. We went looking for a hero. <laughs> and Ryan, what did we find? Oh, uh, we bypassed that very quickly. And instead, we found a legend. And that would be none other than Umbrella Mike Boyle. Umbrella Mike Boyle, once again, you can watch this all on our TV special, but uh, Umbrella Mike was a, uh, I think we, I think the word is businessman out of Chicago, uh, very involved in the International Brotherhood of the Electrical Workers. That's right. Uh, he, uh, they put together a bunch of the buildings out in Chicago, but old Mike Boyle also was involved in, uh, well, what legendary race? Mike Boyle was a car owner and multi-time winner of the Indianapolis 500. So the Boyle Special ended up becoming a legend of the 1930s and 1940s Indianapolis 500 racing. In fact, uh, the most legendary of his cars is at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. You can see this on our television show. And so we met up with a handful of people. We did a couple of visits, a couple of lunches, a couple of dinners, a couple of Zoom calls uh, to, to get some of the background. We also got a couple of interviews canceled due to COVID and things like that. So we kind of had to, I believe the word is pivot. Is that right, Sean? Am I, am I using pivot? Yes. Yeah, we had to pivot and uh, make the best of our travels, but try to put together enough information, uh, whether it was over Zoom, whether it was in person, even finding a restaurant that would actually take us, not because of COVID, just because of our unruly characters, and uh, be able to put something together that we, I'd say we're pretty proud of it. But Ryan, before we uh, before we get on with listening to some of these uh, lunches and dinners and Zoom calls, uh, this probably wouldn't be possible if we didn't have a little bit of help. That's right. Uh, if you know anything about Dinner with Racers, then you're a big fan of Continental Tires. We also added our, uh, what's our new motor oil sponsor, Sean? Is it, uh, help me out, help me out, help me out. Oh, you mean Valvoline. Oh, I like that, I like that. And then of course, couldn't have made it to all these amazing locations and destinations without our trusty Acura MDX. So this first episode, we are going to spotlight uh, just a little bit of background on the era. So this first episode, we're gonna hear from three different people. Uh, and this isn't necessarily about Mike Boyle himself, but we just thought it'd be cool to give some background on what was 1920s and 1930s, not only car racing like, but also the Chicago scene in general, because that plays a big part in Mike Boyle's story. So the first person we met up was actually a guy by the name of Mark Dill. Now, Mark is actually a player in the car racing industry. He's uh, most known right now as doing a lot of the PR and marketing for uh, SVRA, which anybody who's a hardcore road racer knows all about. Uh, but Mark is also a big time racing historian. Mark is also a notable author in the uh, automotive motorsports world, and he recently put out a book called The Legend of the First Super Speedway. He's been very active in promoting it on social media, and we are both huge advocates of Mark. Having not met us before, he was very comfortable, understood exactly what we were looking for, and not only can you see him in the episode, but you can also hear a lot of his words right here. So we met at the uh, Crosstown Pub in Cary, North Carolina. It was a fun little place, and they were more than happy to accommodate us. Uh, and we sat down with Mark for quite a while, and if there's one takeaway we wanted everybody to get from this, is that how much between racing in the 1920s and 1930s change from then to now, Ryan? Oh, it's it, you guys are the same. I say you yeah. guys because sports car racing is perfect. Open wheel racing, you guys are the same. So uh, if there's one thing to learn, it's that we've learned nothing. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and uh, if you hear a pause between Sean and I in the episode, it's because we're looking at each other laughing. 
because you guys are still the same. Alright, we're gonna start in five, four, three, two. So you wanna talk about the nineteen thirties, uh primarily uh Indianapolis, which was about the only game in town. I mean right. if right. you go back and you look at the championship uh the AAA championship, most of those years were only like three races. Right. I mean, it was a tough time. Well, so that's one of the things. When, when you look into that era of racing, so we have an IndyCar championship now, yeah. which is the Indy 500 and then, you know, somewhere between 12 and 16 races a year yeah. on a championship. But the Indianapolis 500 in the 1930s was the event with a handful of races yeah. by a sanctioning body that kind of surrounded Nobody it. Nobody else came close. Right. So, so, tell, so the Indy 500 at that time was, was AAA. Yes. That, that it was basically the IndyCar equivalent of today. So what, what was AAA all about? Well, I mean, they were the original sanctioning body. I don't go into too much detail, but sure. there was a rival called the ACA. Okay. And uh, interestingly, like CART and IRL, they got into a big tussle. <laughs> And, wait, uh, yeah. wait, so wait. Imagine that. You're saying egos in racing? Imagine in open-wheel racing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, there yeah. Really were, so there were two open-wheel championships during one of the hardest-hit economic times. No, no, American I'm history. sorry. That, okay. that was uh, sort of backstory. Okay. And by the 30s, ACA was history. Okay. So a, AAA was it. But uh, uh, it, it was... And they had an interest in promoting automobiles and yeah, advocating yeah, yeah. for yeah. them in Washington. They were a big lobbying arm. And so uh, they were kind of the default, you know, organization to sanction these races. How, when was the first Indy 500? What year? 1911. So, and this was around 1930s? Yes. So it was only about 20 years into IndyCar open wheel racing and also just racing period. And they already had a big fight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that had already like, settled. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so so post World War One, yeah. post Spanish flu, nineteen twenties racing, you had r- racing as a whole had existed for ten or twenty years. Yeah. And you already had two major open wheel sanctioning bodies. Well, I'm arguing. I'm confusing you guys. <laughs> okay. Uh, the whole thing with the ACA that occurred even before the first five hundred. Okay. Uh, and well, it, it, but it was it was so a racing big had been around for four years. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it was a yeah. big pissing match. And okay. And, and it was, uh, you know, people in the Northeast that were extremely wealthy and uh, had this amateur sportsman mentality, mm-hmm. and they got into arguments about who uh, was doing a better job of uh, preserving the spirit of the sport. And it it is just people trying to glom onto power. I am so happy right now that knowing it's still a major anomaly. Like, oh, my God, look at this thing we have. I could could do it better. Yeah, so this is like 1907. (laughs) Yeah. Cars have been around for maybe a a minute. Yeah, well, I mean, the first Vanderbilt Cup was in 1904, so right. it only took them three years before they tried to blow everything yeah, up. And, and basically everyone's like, no, I got this. I can do better. I didn't know what this was a minute ago. This is current culture with social media. Yeah, well, history is prologue, right? I mean, it, it, a lot of this stuff repeats itself. Yeah. And, you know, in the 1930s, I think about it, and some of these uh, names – were uh, they were rock stars back then you know Wilbur Shaw and Louis Meyer both won the race twice during that decade yeah 
And then Billy Arnold was a he was a hell of a driver. He led over 90% of the laps he completed in the first three races. He led all but two laps in 1930, but he got hurt uh, a couple of times, and his wife said, "I want you out of it." Right. So he he retired after 1933. But you had other guys, uh, obviously Wild Bill Cummings, Fred Frame. They were winners, but guys that didn't win, there are probably names that. That may ring a bell with you guys, just uh, like Ted Horn and Rex Mays. I mean, I, uh, up until Rick's, Rick Mears, uh, Rex Mays had won more poles at Indy than any other driver. So these guys were, like, hugely talented, and, you know, that's what happens in racing. You didn't get the brakes, so even though, you know, you're a more talented driver than somebody else, somebody else wins, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. So different. <laughs> Unless you're Scott Dixon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I kind of want to talk about um, leading into the 1930s, the American racing culture, not so much politically in splits and whatnot, but, right. you know, uh, American racing in 2020 mm-hmm. is, you know, very much a split between oval track racing and stock cars. And then you've got IndyCar that kind of combines everything. We've got road racing with sports cars. But the impression I've always been under is that American racing in the 1920s and in the 1930s was pretty much an oval sport. Yeah, I mean, it started out in the era we were talking about. It was mostly road courses, and with the emergence of board tracks and, of course, the speedway. um, And a lot of that was the public roads weren't fit for driving at high speed, and it was dangerous. There was no way to police them. And so containing it, Plus, it was entertaining because these guys could go like bats out of hell. I mean, everybody wanted to see how fast they could go. And the 1920s was go-go era, kind of maybe like the 1990s were. And uh, so a lot of these board tracks started popping up. And, of course, the Speedway was the big kahuna. And that I think one of the things that's interesting and relevant to where you're headed with this is the... American racing cars in the 1920s were arguably far more technologically advanced than this formula that they introduced uh, for the first time in 1930. They were supercharged, finely tuned. The Millers and the Duesenbergs, and the Millers were, I've heard people describe it, it's like the internal workings of like a watch, you know, it just perfection. So when you talk about tracks having issues and popping up explain to me like i'm five years old what a board track was back then well exactly what it sounds like they were made of wood planks they were steeply banked Um, in fact so banked that these cars in the 1920s were cutting laps at 140 miles an hour which was outrageous. Like just completely matted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like in Indianapolis, uh, for example, Leon DeRay, who incidentally holds the track record still for the highest speed attained on a fully brick-paved track. Because after that, he, he was really fast, and then they went into the junk formula, and it wasn't until 1937, I think, that that qualifying speed but by then they'd started paving the track with asphalt right right and i'm off on a tangent so no, that's fine no, that's the, good the, stuff the, a lot of people don't even fine. know board yeah. tracks existed yeah exactly yeah. like yeah. The, the kids under 40 uh, <laughs> yeah uh, they the, the board tracks was an interesting era largely 1920s there were a couple like altoona that hung around into the early 30s um 
but they were these wood plank saucers, but that was hugely popular. They were, yeah. And, uh, and was that because you could see these cars go fast, or as opposed to say a road course where American roads weren't necessarily built for, you could contain everybody into sort of a stadium environment, yeah. very much like sports arenas today. Yeah, sort of like the one and a half mile ovals NASCAR loves. Yeah, the you could see all the way around the track, yeah. and you could contain people. So for the organizers and promoters. Uh, they could make sure that you have to pay to get in. Where on the road courses, they were all over the place. And and if you can imagine a lot of these road courses when the speeds are in the 60s, 70s, and the race starts spreading out, you're going to sit there and, you know, you might eat your whole lunch before yeah. you see another car come around. Yeah. So because yeah, uh, when you say road courses, you mean real road real courses, which yeah. we would now call a street course in theory. Yeah. You know, but yeah, like, so it could be, a long time before anybody comes by, let alone the pack, which yeah. might not even exist after the first lap. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you look at the Vanderbilt, the original Vanderbilt Cup, it, it's, uh, those courses were like 30 miles long, right. Right, you know, and, and like I say, they weren't going that fast. Right. So, so even if cars are a new thing, the speeds, which we would consider really slow today, would probably still be viewed as slow then simply because they had to go that slow to be able to get I don't know I think people were impressed with the speeds and I've had these conversations where if you could think like a 40 horsepower engine for example that doesn't sound uh but you're dealing with a population that for the most part thought in terms of a single horse to pull their car to ride on oh you're gonna put 40 of those in there wow (laughs) you know and the cars were so primitive they were like wagons with engines on them and so the the risk was tremendous the you know that these guys are getting up on two wheels in the corners i mean people don't realize it but yeah you know and i've never seen anything like that before no it was astonishing yeah and you might not see that if you're sitting on the side of a road somewhere in the middle of nowhere right they just go by in a straight line right but seeing them come off of a high-speed corner yeah. yeah, and in the early days, there weren't that many cars, so a lot of times people going to races were seeing a car for the first time. Yeah. So, but anyway, the, uh, you, you know, with the board tracks, uh, that's where Miller and Duesenberg really took off. There were some other kind of specials, as they say. It got Some guy comes up with something, taking his the Buick out of his wife's car or whatever, you know, and builds a frame. Or, But for the most part, these were precision cars and the board tracks were so fast and there was so little safety they didn't wear helmets they didn't have any uh seat belts uh, no fuel bladders any of this stuff and uh, so many of these guys lost their lives i mean really uh like indy 500 winners um you know, like Howdy Wilcox, who won in 1919. I mean, it, it, it was just, it was just devastating. To t- it was like almost every race you had some really bad accident. Yeah. Pre-1930, like let's call it the 1920s, post-World War One, the racing cars in America, the era, were built for these purpose-built speedways. Yes. Um, they weren't necessarily road course racing cars where it was about braking and how could you get around the tight corner or having a suspension travel that could go right. over rough terrain that you would out on a regular road. Right. They were meant to go on left-handed, high-banked board tracks. And that's and, what the and, were. And the Brickyard. Yeah. Which was the big race. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. So when AAA adopted the new junk formula, where did that come from? 
Well, it, it actually was developed in 1928, but it what which was pre-crash, you know, 19 uh, stock market crash, mm-hmm. and it was first introduced in 1930. But so the whole idea uh, at the beginnings of the Indy 500, there um, was heavy factory involvement. I mean, the first even rate, like in 1911. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, because they, the the companies were trying to establish themselves, promote their right, products, right, and all that. Right. And that kind of fell out of favor when uh, they just thought it was too costly. They weren't getting the benefit they wanted. Imagine that. In 1911, this was the yeah, case. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's already starting. <laughs> so by the time you got to the other side of World War One, there was all this concern. Right. Uh, can we even get enough cars together to have a race? And that's when you saw a lot of speed shops and specials pop up. But Miller and Miller was an example of a guy, Harry Miller was an example of a guy that was just crazy about racing. And so he built race cars. He didn't build production cars. And then Duesenberg was a production car company. And they also loved racing. And, uh, you know, so they in the 20s were... But getting back to the junk formula, they, they wanted to get... Uh, and at this point, Eddie Rickenbacker was the was the force of nature at the Speedway because mm-hmm. he was he was the he was the owner of Indy. He was the guy that set kind of he the put together an investment group that purchased Indy and they installed him as president. Right. Okay. So and he um, wanted to. Uh, they had been talking about this for years and years. How do we get the automobile companies? interested right so the theory was again i'm loving the, the yeah, parallels right. Hold on. a lot of parallels so, so <laughs> 1929 they're like how do we modify the rules to get the oems right right, right. we got to get honda and chevy in here i mean, well, I mean there's <laughs> how there's, do we attract fiat <laughs> like, there's several of these you know if you if you talk about what was going on in, in this decade you're interested right. in yeah the similarities in terms of just like human behavior, uh, you know, just attitudes that come out or the way they people interrelated. It, yeah. it, it's like it's like the way it is now. Right. It, it just boiled down to how can we get manufacturers interested? Okay. And um, they wanted to return to the days where the Speedway was truly a, a development laboratory. So hold on. <laughs> So 1928, they're like, this isn't the way it used to be. I miss the old days of Indy. Right. <laughs> People don't change. <laughs> and, li- and like I said, um, gosh darn it. The idea was developed in 1928. Yeah. Everybody was fat, dumb, and happy. They didn't know what was about to happen. To right, them. right, right. Um, in terms of just the American economy in 1928, right. was really healthy. The stock, stock market, market is, crash is, in October of 29. That's right. But this hasn't happened yet, so everybody thinks everything's great. This is great. What yeah. could go wrong? Yeah. It was a, it was for the United States anyway. It was a go go era. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Roaring twenties. No. Get know? another mortgage. Yeah. And uh, buy uh, some of Carl Fisher's property down in Miami. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> even sell you stuff that's uh, over the ocean. I mean, you know. So anyway, uh, yeah, they were uh, seeking this automotive. Uh, manufacturer participation Mm -hmm. and uh but it just it didn't really work i I, they uh despite all that they got basically two manufacturers that were willing to take a swipe at it it was studebaker and ford okay and 
Studebaker was. And this was for the junk formula, you mean? Yeah, during okay. that era. So, it, so heading into 1930. So basically, so the 1920s becomes a lot of private shops running their own racing. Well, I mean, Duesenberg was a big company, okay. uh, not well managed. Uh, the brothers were criticized as just having a car company as an excuse to run race teams. And kind of sure. people. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and then Miller, like I said. Yeah. But so, so the, the, the big windfall of participation is perceived as how do we get manufacturers yes. involved in the late 20s. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so Detroit, not too far away from Indiana, uh, the way they, so they, they start thinking how do we create a rules package to incentivize Detroit to want to reinvest in, in racing at Indy. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I wonder how much this was socialized mm-hmm. with the movers and shakers in Detroit because they, they just didn't respond really i mean studebaker and ford studebaker did finish third i think it was 1932 Mm -hmm. that was the best performance of the two companies ford only they they were there in 32 and 33 and then ford was there in 35 edsel ford was the driver behind that the you know the initiator um and his father didn't really henry didn't really care for the idea a lot but he let him do it yeah so they had 10 cars nine showed up at the track only four made the race and none of them finished yeah and so the story goes henry just ripped edsel a new one yeah, and that was, was the end of that yeah just an embarrassing and, performance yeah. yeah so uh they you know if you look at what who who were the dominant cars uh it was miller again mm-hmm. they won the first uh five races right and, and Miller wasn't perceived as a car manufacturer the way a Ford no. or... He was okay. a racer. He, yeah. he, was, he, he basically ran an elaborate race team. Mm-hmm. Okay. But he was also a quirky dude. I mean, uh, I've read where he, uh, his re- religious perspective lined up more with the occult. He was not a particularly good businessman. And a lot of people think he was the best engineer in the world. And he had this weird talent for envisioning things Mm -hmm. and then enlisting the aid of guys that really knew how to, you know, Mm -hmm. measure all the pieces and mill them and whatever you do to a car to make it come together. Right. And uh, so by 1934, uh, he's running out of business. And... um, Fred Offenhauser, which is a name I'm sure everybody's yeah. heard in yeah. racing circles, and he worked for Miller, and he bought bought it out. So then you started seeing these cars called Offies, but they were really a derivative of Miller. And, you know, they won a few of the races and the remaining. So uh, it was really Miller and the Offenhauser uh, derivative that dominated the, the decade until the Boyle Maserati, and we'll get to that. Let's let, let's. I want to stick on the establishing sure. what junk formula was. Um, I mean, back then it was primarily about you know they would have a rule book. You, cars can only be so wide. Here's the track. Here's the you know, but uh, the focus was always on the engines, and okay. so the reasoning was if we're gonna essentially they took away superchargers, they weren't perceived as something that was relevant okay. to street cars, and. Uh, they did allow them for two cycle engines, and I could quickly get out of my depth here because I'm not a mechanic, but uh, needless to say, no one entered a two cycle supercharged engine ever. Okay. So uh, that was the latitude they had. So the junk 
formula was actually called the uh, 366 formula. But the junk formula kind of caught on with the railbirds and the press, and it was just a more fun thing to say, yeah, frankly. Absolutely, yeah. And so, so it was that, basically called the junk formula because they neutered the cars to try and appeal to manufacturers. Yeah, and also it opened the door to, like, you see these specials. And so I remember what Buick, there was guys that showed up with, like, a Buick engine mm-hmm. or a Chrysler engine or a Stutz reemerged, of all things. <laughs> and Yeah, you know those. <laughs> Such building in Indianapolis is a cool place to go if you've never been there. Um, but anyway, uh, so I think it was like you're, you're letting these guys come in that have speed shops and they're building this hot rod and he get, they get to race. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. When we're used to these highly sophisticated Millers and Duesenbergs in the 20s, they had superchargers and went like bats out of hell. So they were hoping that the speed would not be compromised too much. You still need fans to care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but they wanted to make it less expensive and more attractive to the automakers. So they said, we'll allow any like naturally aspirated engine up to 366 cubic inches. The era also brought back uh, riding mechanics. Mm-hmm. So riding mechanics, um, stopped in 1923 and there were no riding mechanics between 23 and 29 by rule or just the tech had advanced beyond riding mechanics like Uh, in other words miller figured out a way to engineer past needing that and you realize it's so much quicker to not have that yeah it's kind of a combination of both okay in the earliest days um the riding mechanic was a spotter. He was mm-hmm. he was basically the oil pump. Yeah, right. He's yeah, always that, that, exactly. Bur- yeah. You know. Yeah. And as they got more sophisticated and those kinds of things became more automated. Sure. It wasn't. Uh, it was just extra weight and another risk of human life, frankly. Yeah. And that was part of the issue. They brought back riding mechanics in '30 again to try to make it look more relevant to. Street cars and uh, yeah, technology. Right. Yeah, right. You got a passenger with you. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, but the... Seats. Yeah. We have seats. But a, a safety measure really would be to say, hey, you know, why, why put another person in there who's not really in a truly functional yeah. role? Yeah. And if there is an accident, you That's know... That's two people now two instead people. of one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and... I guess the other thing that was interesting is, as far as junk formula goes, it really ended in 36. They opened it up again and said, okay, you can bring your superchargers back and all that. But there was one car, it was a Bugatti that showed up, that it was supercharged. Everything else was pretty much what they'd been running yeah. because all these guys they didn't have a whole lot of money. I mean, they were always struggling, like every race team does, is... Uh, you know, to make ends meet. And technology didn't evolve as quickly back then as it does now. So uh, they persisted with the cars that they had been running for a couple of years. But I know you want to get into the impact of the Vanderbilt Cup. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I want to... I want to yeah, so we'll just pop it real quick. The, yeah. yeah. For a time period in open wheel racing in North America, there was a bit of a development game taking place where... Sometimes throughout the year you'd have big updates, but almost every year you'd have a new chassis update. 
And then in recent years, we've gone to a spec chassis, and everyone uses the same kind of car for year on end in terms of design. Now, you could get a new chassis, but the design's been pretty much frozen in terms of aero, suspension, right. and things like that. With the junk formula, how long were those cars used in open-wheel racing? Well, I mean, it, it varies, but they were used for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And if you see uh, what came out of uh, World War II, um, most of those cars were things they dust, they found in a barn and dusted off. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it was a lot to do with the economy and just the nature of racing. And obviously, in a depression, it's harder to find financial backing. Sure. So... Uh, it was really out of necessity to keep. And there was no rule mandating any of that mm -hmm. other than just don't make your engine bigger than 366 cubic inches right, and right. you're gold. So a car that ran in 1930 and crashed three times over could still show up in 1936. Oh, yeah. And often did. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We know of racing in the U.S. at that time, primarily being ovals and speedways and Indianapolis in particular. But... There was this on and off again time for what was then known as the Vanderbilt Cup. What was that? So the Vanderbilt Cup started in 1904. It was the uh, vision of William K. Vanderbilt Jr., who was the uh, great-grandson of Commodore Vanderbilt, who was the richest man in the world. And uh, they were owned railroads and so forth. And he just took an interest in racing. And he went over to the... Uh, to Europe and raced in a lot of the big races. Some in like of those early twentieth century. Yeah, and even yeah. Uh, a, a couple in the uh, like eighteen eighteen uh, ninety eight ninety nine. And I, you know, somebody like the Renault brothers were hitting ninety miles an hour on a straightaway in in eighteen ninety nine. Uh, it was like, this is insane because, yeah, no. you know, you had artillery-grade wheels. Yeah. And it, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. The, that's so right. No, no. He, he ran the Vanderbilt Cup, and um, he was his, even though he was so Eurocentric, and almost all the cars he owned were European. He loved his Mercedes. He set the world land speed record down in Daytona in 1904 in a Mercedes. And... But his premise was, I've been to Europe, I see the disparity, the Europeans are so far ahead of us, I need to ring a wake-up call with American manufacturers mm -hmm. to step up their game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In what year again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nothing's changed. Um, 2020. <laughs> The, you know, I mean, it goes back to a trade-off between economy of scale and production and focused on selling as many as you can versus performance and whatever. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he, he uh, was the driving force behind that early version, which ran up till 1916. To sort of adopt a European-friendly format of racing. He wanted to have Europeans come over, and they did for a while. Not to digress, that's where we had this Automobile Club of America fallout, and um, they ended up running the Grand Prize, which a lot of people say that was the first USGP. Sure. Okay. Okay. But it was their race, not a, not AAA. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they, through all their negotiations and finagling, they got um, the ACA was seen as the European conduit. So okay. the grand prize 
Yeah. And they had these weird <laughs> compromises for the Vanderbilt Cup, but it was okay you could have foreign marks represented, but you can't have a factory team show up. I am learning so much today about how human behavior my life doesn't matter. It's already scripted a <laughs> hundred years ago. So let me just get this straight. Yep. 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 It's nineteen oh six. Where was the ACA based out of in Europe? Uh, they were both based out of New York. They're both American. This oh, is like oh, camp car. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. I mean, we were yeah. just rival and the ACA. So in, in 1906, you had two open wheel categories of which one was complained about of being too European focused and international. And the other one was more based on American oval racing in they got, 1906. They got into their pissing match in ni- 1906. And there was, in fact, there was no Vanderbilt Cup in 1907, largely because of... Uh, you know, all the animosity and so... No, we're not having it. <laughs> I know, I know. So uh, in 1908, that's when you have the first American Grand Prize. That was ACA's first. And those cars were really cool. I mean, mm-hmm. for the day, they, those were... Uh, what Louis Wagner won, you know, in a French mark. And then... Uh, but the Vanderbilt Cup continued on, and they continued on until 1916. Now, what happened in the 1930s, and I think it's important to note that Eddie Rickenbacker was, in a lot of ways, the driving force behind the revival. Really? Yeah. Okay. Eddie, Rickenbacker, Eddie Rickenbacker being the sort pro- of the equivalent of like the Holman family or, the, yeah, or, or, or the, Roger Penske today yeah. being like yeah, the big yeah, influencer yeah. of American racing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, World War I fighting ace. He was just an American icon. And, uh, but I think it's significant because... He helped organize this revival, borrowing the name not of Willie Kay, but of George Vanderbilt, who was Willie's uh, nephew. Nephew, right. And what, did Rickenbacker push that just to have the namesake? Yeah. I mean, he he knew what he was doing. (laughs) I mean, and they brought it it back to Long Island, which was the, uh, it was Westbury, uh, which was the original uh, you know, venue, if you will, mm-hmm. of the Vanderbilt Cup. And, but at that time, they set up a road course, and it was uh, a cinder track. And George Robertson, who was maybe America's best driver uh, in the first decade, uh, he got injured and his career ended because he took a newspaper reporter out for a ride and the guy got spooked and grabbed him and he lost control and uh, the car turned over and uh, I suspect what I understand is George probably suffered a similar condition to Gary Bettenhausen. Oh, wow. And he had some nerve damage. He couldn't really move yeah. his... Yeah. And it was even harder back then because those big cars, mm-hmm. you know, you had to be a brute. And the reporter just got up and dusted his pants oh. off and went away. So... Um, Sorry. That was some... And then the lawyers got involved <laughs> in the 1930s. They ran that race two times. They reconfigured the course the second year, so it was not the same course. But the original course was uh, over four miles long wow. and uh, had a lot. It was right near Lincoln Airfield. Not even know if that still exists on Long Island, but it was right... In fact, I think they called it Lincoln Raceway. Mm-hmm. And... It had a lot of hairpins, tight curves, and so forth. And, of course, it was cinder, so it was 
you know, kind of dirt trackish a little bit in the way you might approach driving it. And uh, they, uh, the some of the Europeans came over, most notably uh, Tazio Nuvolari mm-hmm. in the Alpha, and this is pre-Ferrari days. So at that time, Enzo was a team owner. If you if you if you've ever seen it, there's some of those cars at some of the shows, and it's got yeah. it's an Alpha from the with 1930s Ferrari, with right. the Ferrari emblem. Right. So anyway, uh, he was dominant and uh you know kicked ass took names he he just ruled the course yeah and there were some other entries like era and bugatti and so forth but there wasn't any from the silver arrows the germans the mercedes or the auto union they did come the next year so in fact if they had come in 36 as great as nuvolari was he probably would have lost that race to them yeah so the vanderbilt revival comes in 1936 and the focus is to be, be a complete departure from what American racing was at the time. So this is a road course, but the other thing is they really want to have that European influence and feel. So they invite a lot of European manufacturers out there. Yeah. European road racing in the 1930s was very, very advanced uh, because it had so much government-involved uh, efforts. So mm-hmm. Germany very famously had state-run uh, auto union and Mercedes cars. Italy was very involved in Alfa Romeo. Uh, and and because of the Grand Prix circuit in the 1930s being sort of a symbol of national pride, those cars were extremely advanced. So this mm-hmm. Vanderbilt Cup, which was supposed to sort of have that feel in like the nice parts of Long Island, uh, was a complete departure from what people were used to seeing. Americans. Yeah. 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 And uh, but I think everybody was curious. They always wanted to see uh, these exotic cars yeah. from Europe with these charismatic drivers. Mm-hmm. But at the, the, the initial one, actually, more so than the second one, was, hey, let's match up the best of America with the best of Europe. Right. And, uh, but the American cars are built for speedway racing, not road that's courses. Right. Yeah. Well, for example, Wilbur Shaw, who had already built his 1937 winner that he called the pay car. He literally built that in his garage. He entered that in the 1936 Vanderbilt Cup and wrecked on the second lap. Huh. I mean, this is our Indy 500 champion, yeah. arguably one of the best drivers in the world. Yeah. And But the car, you're right, the car was not, that wasn't the right car for that. Sure. Yeah, these cars are built for Indy. They're not built for high braking, yeah. super tight cornering chicanes and versus European cars are coming in from European road races. That's this exactly is what, what they, they do. do. Yeah. Right. yeah, I mean, it was an amazing disparity. And I, I, I don't want to go off the deep end on this, but uh, I think it's worth noting that there were two midget cars huh. entered. Uh, and the drivers were Bob Swanson and this guy, Louis Tome. And Swanson was, if you look back on his career, he was more accomplished. Mm-hmm. He was one of those guys, very talented, but didn't get the brakes. Yeah. And uh, anyway... He, they were throwing these midgets around, and as I understand it, they could drive this entire four-plus-mile um, course flat out. Yeah. And they would just fling it around the corners. Bog it down on the speed, And yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, he, was, he was actually giving Tazio Nuvolari fits. And after the race, Nuvolari sought him out and shook his hand and said, that was the best driving I've ever seen in my life. Wow. So coming from the guy who was the European yeah. champion yeah. and 
you know, it's I'm like, sure you guys stand know. on this chair and shake your hand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in Italy, he still, you know, got that rock star yeah. uh, image. Yeah. And this, he died in 1951. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Hero. Total hero. Yeah. Sport. Total hero. Yeah. yeah. One of our closest friends in sports car racing is Italian. And, and his first, like, he grew up karting at the Nuvolari kart circuit because it's still, okay. still yeah. built after I all saw, that. I saw, I yeah. found just a few years ago a Nuvolari music video on YouTube. What? An what? Italian artist. <laughs> We're going to have to remake that. And as I understand it, that exposure to the quality of the racing and cars that were coming in from Europe during the Vanderbilt Cup kind of exposes how a new rule set could really benefit Indy. Yeah. Well, yes, but also before the Vanderbilt Cup in 36 is when they effectively technically ended the junk formula. Okay. And but why? Um, I think they could see it wasn't working. Okay. <laughs> they weren't getting the results that they right. wanted, you yeah. know. Because here they'd had six years that was supposed to attract major manufacturers, and they just didn't come. Yeah, two, two show up, and we're virtual one and done, right. you know. But meanwhile, it's kind of not as fun of a show as it used to right. be. Right, right. And okay. combined with the economic depression and probably a show that was less interesting, they did start seeing gate receipts fall off. Okay. So, uh, not dramatically, but, it, you know, you don't want to see that in your business. Sure. So, it was probably also an idea of uh, just, you know, rekindling, revitalizing, you know, the sport. And the cars were so much cooler. I mean, you yeah, know. Yeah. So, basically, here we are seven years deep into the worst economic disaster that America had seen. Right. Gate receipts are getting worse and worse and worse. So Indianapolis basically takes the attitude, we need to revitalize this whole thing. So let's create a rule set that gets rid of the junk formula, becomes more open to some of these exciting European manufacturers. Yeah. yeah. In terms of, because <clears throat> obviously Mike Boyle and Wilbur Shaw had a pretty strong relationship, and you seem to have a pretty good grasp on the characters of a lot of these drivers. Give us your character take on Wilbur Shaw. Like, what was he known to be like as a person? Actually, I think Shaw was widely respected. He was exemplary in terms of the kind of uh, face you'd want to put on the sport. Okay. He's very professional, very competitive, and, yeah, he demanded, you know, the best out of people. But he was reasonable and professional. Yeah. And when does Mike Boyle start showing up at the Speedway? I don't remember the exact date, but, again, he won the 1934 500 with Bill Cummings driving. Right. Yeah. So uh, he was, you know, he was an acknowledged force. I mean, you don't just win the Indy 500. I mean, okay, we got we got to pay attention to what this guy's doing. Yeah. And uh, you know, so he was always looking for opportunities. And this whole thing with the Vanderbilt Cup and Wilbur Shaw and all that. I mean, he actually bought a Maserati for Shaw in '38. Uh, but what was shipped was not what he ordered. It was a, uh, it had a small engine. It was like 91 cubic inches or something. It was supercharged. Mario Rose ended up driving and it. I mean, he was kind of a youngster at that time. And he, uh, I don't remember exactly where he finished, but he, he finished pretty well. Right. So well, before we get into like the Maseratis and, and all of that, we'll just talk about establishing the character of Mike Boyle at Indy. Mm-hmm. So Mike Boyle shows up. Um, he's known as a union guy out of Chicago. 
the ability to fund an Indy 500 program mm-hmm. based on being an electrician doesn't seem to make sense mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Would that have been the case then? Uh, that it didn't make sense? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure, you know, they were skeptics. I, probably it was like a wink and a nod. They more or less understood. And the main thing was, you, you're going to get enough money to go racing? Okay. You know, I, not a whole lot of questions yeah. asked. And uh, he's a big shot. He's a big executive up in uh, Chicago. You know, yeah. he's he's got the connections to make this, uh, you know, to fund this. Right. So I, I don't think there was a whole lot of, um, I could be wrong. Somebody that knows the boil story better than I do but I, I don't but he was seen as somewhat mysterious yeah yeah well because yeah how would you know exactly you know you're not just going to pull up Google well you know and do a background right. check not in 1930 and was it even something you'd think of back then if someone's yeah. got a car and they're there right you're like oh okay we're racing yeah I mean uh, you know we all know racing people I mean, it was like you talk about what was going on in the world uh, it, it, the depression and then Hitler's uprising and in the racing community, even in Europe, you know, later in that decade, they just wanted to race. You know, so like, can't you just do whatever you want to do over there and let me, you know, race. And of course they got overran. So to just kind of draw a modern analogy after, you know, the sort of small economic downturn we had in 2008, we had a few people show up in sports car racing. One particularly, I think as years went on in sports car racing, um, most people knew that the way he was crewing his funding probably wasn't all on the up and up. However, if within the racing community, the check clears and he's treating everybody within the community well, people tend to just sort of look the other yeah, way and just whatever. go, oh, That's right, it's working. Business. Right. My read is it was probably the same thing in yes, the 1930s. I think very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Perfect. <laughs> you know, it's racing people. I'm like, oh, money? It's good? Yeah, the series. Uh, it didn't bounce? Yeah. yeah. Let's go. Like, our series never did anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. It's when he went to jail that it... It's like, it, oh, that's no part of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had nothing to do with this. And we're like, um, well, we're not sure we should do this. So, in, but especially when times are rough and it's hard to get a car on the track just because sponsorship's not necessarily there. A pay guy isn't necessarily what you want. If somebody's showing up, isn't treating everybody poorly and his mm-hmm. checks are clearing, mm-hmm. you're probably just not going to care. Yeah, and I think you'll find that's what, that's a good description of the way Mike Boyle was. I mean, what people knew about him uh, in the racing world was just how he behaved at the track. Yeah. And I'm sure he had an ego, you know, but whatever. He just like all those guys did, and he had money, and, yeah. you know, it's like, I don't care. And most of the competitors, you know, their heads down trying to figure out how they can make their stuff go faster. Right. And, what well, I feel like in in the paddock now, you know, as long as it's not bothering you, you don't really care about it. You yeah. know, so like, for example, what Sean was referring to when that was going on, I don't remember anybody internally in our sport that was like, that's a problem. That's a right. black is like, yeah. oh, is that what that is? How, how do I race for them? Yeah. Literally, <laughs> yeah. Are they hiring? Yeah. yeah. And now you got to go back to that era where news was so much harder to come by. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, if you didn't know anybody that knew them, yeah. you wouldn't have any information. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I don't know whether it's fair to say they were more gullible than, sure. you know, yeah. than we are now. Well, but your exposure was different. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, if, if, if they were told something, they just accepted it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. But you're going to accept something a lot more when you, now you can pay your mortgage. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, yeah. Well, that's no. if you're involved. Yeah. If you're racing against it and, they, and the guy's 
got a good crew. He's got a good car. They're they're quality. They're doing a quality job on track, and they they oh yeah, he's an executive from Chicago. That's, That's probably, all probably you need what to, you just said is yeah. probably exactly how he was looked at. Yeah. Oh, he's some big shot out of Chicago. Yeah. He's got money. Okay, Something to do here. with the union. You know, he's got Cotton Henning working for him, and Wilbur Shaw's involved. Like, well, let's go racing. Those are all big names. There must yeah. be some legitimacy. Yep. Yeah. So, Cotton Henning and Mike Boyle are are kind of the the, the two some that are making Boyle Racing really work. And they decided to go check out what this Vanderbilt Cup is all about. Mm -hmm. As I understood it, it was in that moment that he really engaged with Wilbur Shaw, who was also there to check out the same thing. And my understanding is he went to Boyle, said, if you buy me one of these, I'll win the Indy 500. And that's when there was a mix-up, and they got the wrong car over here. So he had, you know, but it finally, they finally got the right car for 1939. Right. Meanwhile, Maserati at the time, you know, the European economy was in really bad shape, and especially in Italy. And the Maserati brothers, as we understand it, were not in good shape at all right. financially. So the ability to sell anybody on a car mm-hmm. was a very big opportunity. They were they were months out from a buyout. They were really trying to kind of get one last shot at it. So okay. when all of a sudden this opportunity to go racing in America and sell cars to go racing in America yeah. becomes an opportunity, that's something they jump at. Mm-hmm. So... They do a deal with Boyle to sell a car, but they can't get anything in time for the 38500, so they build this this six model or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's not at all what they were expecting, mm-hmm. um, to the point that, that and I, the Boyle guys can hopefully answer it, yeah. to the point that like I think the car basically just unloads. It's like, what, this That's isn't what it. we wanted. Yeah. 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 Um, but again, they Mari Rose drove it, so yeah. they didn't toss it. Right, exactly. So lesson learned for the 39 race... After the Indy 500 1938, uh, Henning actually goes to Italy. He doesn't know Italian. He's yeah. not exactly a world traveler. Yeah. Right. Doesn't have uh, Google Translate in his phone. Uh, he had but, an Android. It yeah. wasn't working yet. <laughs> but he goes there specifically to make sure that the car right. that Mike has paid for is the car that they're going to be getting right. in the next year's race. Yeah, and I, I have read about that particular yeah. transaction. You're, you got it exactly right. Was that common i mean is are there any other american teams going to europe to make sure it's exactly as, the, as promised? you know i don't think so but, but they did start purchasing cars like rex mays whoever was his car owner purchased um, an alpha that was a team car in fact it was the spare car to their effort in 1936 so the 1936 vanderbilt happens the european entries destroy all these american Oval track cars, basically. Right. So what happens in the second year of the Vanderbilt Cup? Well, the Americans could see the superiority of European technology. So you saw a lot of people like Wilbur Shaw, like Rex Mays, American drivers that were seen as the best of the day. Uh, and they jumped at the chance to get, figure out some way to get their hands on uh, a Maserati uh, or, or any European model. And Rex Mays, I think, he had an owner who purchased one, you know, so it became a private entrant. And um, I believe Wilbur Shaw was in a team car. So, but he loved the Maserati, and he told Boyle, you know, you get me one of those. 1937, America is politically isolationist at the time, not involved in any of the European rising tensions. But coming into that Vanderbilt race are an Alfa Romeo from the Mussolini fascist regime, 
and the Silver Arrows cars, which at the time have swastikas on them. Yeah. Uh, did anyone care? You know, it was interesting. Apparently, the promoters asked the Germans to put swastikas on the cars. I didn't know whether they... What? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's weird to hear, uh, but I, I'm guessing... I'm speculating yeah. that they thought it made them look more awesome, and the Americans heard what was going on over there, so these are like the invaders and maybe create more of an us-them kind of enthusiasm. Right. So I think it was actually a promotion, but it's a, it's kind of a bizarro thing. So all I'm reading right now is a forum going, too much marketing! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 1938, Indy 500 happens. Uh, Boyle's program isn't what they thought it would be because the Maserati wasn't necessarily as promised. Right. Um, Cotton Henning physically sends himself to a foreign country, a language he doesn't know, to make sure the car that they get back is the car they expect. Correct. So what happens in 1939? Well, he, he travels with the car back, and uh, they uh, are delighted because here it is. It's this super sophisticated, supercharged car. And it is beautiful. I'm sure you guys have been over there to the museum and seen that thing. And it's so um, they, uh, you know, they enter the 500 and Shaw does exactly what he said he'd do. <laughs> he wins the race. If the Indy 500 rules were more open today and we could buy a car from another country and we yeah. had multiple manufacturers, you couldn't just buy a car from a European engineering firm and just sort of jig it up the way you want when you get to Indy. It would require a lot of very precise measurements. You'd have to have a team of engineers, and you couldn't just make carbon pieces in yeah, a day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how different would that have been in the 1930s? Uh, vastly different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, there were guys that really fabricated, and everything was, uh, you know, hand design. Uh, you know, you weren't using... Uh, wind tunnels or sure. or uh, CAD cam or whatever. Uh, so no, I mean, vastly different. Yeah. So in today's day, you can literally on a Monday send money to buy a car from Europe, mm -hmm. and that car will be there on Friday. Mm -hmm. Good to go. What was the process like back then? Well, it certainly didn't have that kind of turnaround. Right. Uh, so Henning was sent to Italy to inspect the car, make sure it was right, and had the. The, the bag of money to, you know, conduct the transaction. And uh, those cars were shit. I mean, shit. Yeah. We're talking about get on a boat and go across the ocean. So yeah. just the nature of getting your hands on the thing would set you back. And uh, as far as whatever modifications, you know, that, not, a, not unlike today. You'd have to go out and test and then mm -hmm. figure out, well, what do we need to do? Um uh, Unlike today, they could pretty much fabricate whatever they needed and, and uh, replace, say, brakes or what have yeah. you, and you're good to go. Yeah. So if, if it took several weeks today and we ordered a race car and we kind of figured it wasn't going to come until April, we would have missed all of our preseason testing yeah. in the first few races, but that just wasn't a thing then. No, it wasn't. I mean, you could, there was no limit on testing. You could go do whatever you wanted. And, um, and again, you're preparing for one race, so you're not, like, missing half the season. You don't care about right. St. Pete season opener. Right. Yeah. You're worried about Indy. doesn't exist, in you know, and that was another thing in those days. You know, the whole series, uh, 
IndyCar season was maybe four races. Yeah. And, and a lot of that was, there were more in the 20s when the economy was healthy or apparently so. Mm-hmm. We learned during our podcast that IndyCar today, even for a smaller team, is a minimum of about 15 people directly working on the performance of the car, mm-hmm. of which half of them are engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about 1930s? Maybe be significantly less. I, I, and I, again, it depends on the funding. And they also had some rules, just like we do here, but uh, it was tighter about how many people could come over the wall on a pit stop and so forth. So, but no, the teams were nowhere near as mm-hmm. big and nowhere near, you know, a lot of crew members may feel like they don't get paid enough, but right. these guys, you know, maybe they give you a t-shirt or something, but um, so these, these were guys that were just really passionate about the opportunity being right. in, in the deal. And uh, they were not, the high-priced former NFL players or whatever. So Bill Cummings is who won with Mike Boyle the first time? Yep. Where would you put a Bill Cummings and a Wilbur Shaw in terms of what they are what they were known to be like? Well, you know, it's interesting. Bill, Cum- uh, Bill Cummings, the press put a tag on him, Wild Bill Cummings. Yeah. And he never liked that. And the story was that wasn't the way he was. And, if, and uh, after he won the race... He said, uh, I should be called Conservative Bill Cummings Uh, because basically he ran a smart race. He made fuel. He (laughs) took care of his tires. He didn't press it harder than he had to. And uh, Boyle and Henning were happy with him for that. You know, he followed orders. And uh, so I think they were both very, they were gifted and professional and respected um, it just Shaw was a little bit more successful. Yeah, I think on Shaw, it, 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 we, we shouldn't forget. And I know you know this that it, he was uh, he had good instincts as a business person. Yeah. you know. So proceed. So for example, well, I mean, like, so he later, about his pay car. Later, he became president of the of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and he. Uh, was the type of guy he had a i mean you can be certain whatever the deal was he had input he yeah. wasn't going to like golly gee mike buy me a car yeah he was going to be pretty particular and uh he was a bit on of an entrepreneur because i mean a good example is he built what he called the pay car yeah. he he built it to his specs and uh you know building something from the ground up even if it is 1935 36 uh you know, and there was more latitude to do that. Uh, still, that's pretty darn impressive. Yeah. And, and it shows you, too, that, you know, some guys could just drive cars. Mm-hmm. And I maybe uh, if, you're, if you're comparing him to Bill Cummings, Shaw probably had a broader array of, of skills yeah. and talents, and whereas Cummings was just a hell of a driver. Uh-huh. So... Wilbur Shaw has always struck me as sort of the perfect counter to Mike Boyle for what Mike Boyle needed. Mike Boyle was able to provide a professionalism and a funding, mm-hmm. but he's synonymous with not necessarily always putting his face out there because right. of a lot of legal battles he was right. in at the time. Whereas Wilbur Shaw seemed to be that polished professional that was a perfect face to keep mm-hmm. the press out of Mike Boyle's face. Yeah, and Boyle never was open about any kind of funding come from coming from uh ibew he it was the boyle special yeah. you know and just like we t- 
we spoke earlier, you know, he's this hotshot, big deal coming out of Chicago. You know, he's just got lots of money. Yeah. Right. Well, it's like. <laughs> but if you have a guy like Wilbur Shaw, who, like, if we're putting him in modern terms, like, let's say Joseph Newgarden just sort of never says anything wrong, handsome people, everybody yeah. likes him. Um, that's exactly the kind of distracting face uh, that you would want so that pr- the press aren't looking at Mike Boyle going, well, what is all of this? Because Wilbur Shaw is engaging enough that he can take all that press attention away. Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. And uh, he, you know, Wilbur Shaw, by that time, he was seen as one of the masters. Mm-hmm. I mean, he'd won in 37. He'd finished second a couple other times. He was just seen as everybody knew that he was one of the most gifted drivers. And so he had a lot of fans and, you know, so you're right. I mean, if he was the face to it, um, Boyle could kind of be in the in the background a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I on Boyle, and this is in the book, I mean, he doesn't want a whole lot of publicity. Or he doesn't want a whole lot of people kind of investigating how, well, where is his money coming from? Right. Wilbur Shaw is, of course, synonymous with winning the 500 several times. Um, his driving style kind of reminds me of Rick Mears, that, like, he didn't have to set the fastest lap on lap five right. but somehow with 30 laps to go there he is yeah yeah exactly i, yeah. I he was a smart racer you mm-hmm. know and i remember when i was a kid and i see guys and they they're leading you know and and then they break and i was like oh he would have won if he hadn't no not really yeah. because al or senior was another guy like that he and rick had similar styles in that regard He's, they're using their head mm-hmm. they stay in the neighborhood and then when they know when go time yeah. and they know what their car and they've saved their stuff. Mm-hmm. And that you, that's what you could say about Wilbershaw. He was successful enough at Indy that he didn't need to run a ton of races. Like a lot, like a lot of guys were out there driving to try and pick up checks here and there. Right. But mm-hmm. he was pretty much like the indie guy. Pretty much indie guy. Yeah. And Mari Rose was that way, too. Yeah. yeah, that's another difference in the era. Um, a lot of these guys, they just showed up to do Indy. Yeah. And well, like uh, Mari, he was working at the Allison factory. Huh. Wow. And he would take a lunch break yeah. and go practice <laughs> in May. So Wilbershaw yeah. could make a healthy living by literally just running Indy and then doing spokesman work for some of those sponsors for the rest of the year. Yeah. And he was good. And he did some of that, you know, uh, endorsements and so forth, yeah. which was another part of his business mm-hmm. yeah. savvy, you know. How did his podcast do? <laughs> it was number one at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no, he never asked me to be on it, so I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so famously, he was kind of already thinking time was coming up, and then 1941 happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he obviously been very successful. I, I don't know what he would have done if there had been a 1942. Yeah. Uh, but then, so you, you've won three times. You pretty made it pretty clear you were going to win that race, if not for a, a screw up, frankly. Yeah, right. Um, and then, uh, you know, just what six, seven months later, uh, we're at war in the biggest conflagration in history. Uh, so no speedway from '42 through '45. Well, that's a big chunk of their careers, right, you know, right. and especially when you were. Old enough, you were getting to the point where um, people in the, at that era expected you to, you know, you're going to retire, right? Yeah, you're getting yeah. close. I think also on that, uh, just to add, I mean, he uh, he worked really hard to find the right person, mm-hmm. Holman, and when he finally got that done, uh, 
Holman needed help because he didn't know anything about racing. Yeah. So Shaw had the savvy and the ability to act as an executive, mm-hmm. you know, and take on a ton more responsibility than, you know, from almost any other executive. I mean, you know, we're not having Penske there now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Is, is as good the, as it can get. Yeah. yeah. Gold standard. Let me set up that context for what you we were just saying, and then we'll go from there. Um, so you don't have to answer this because you already did. So World War II ends, uh, 1945 is upon us. Rickenbacker is done with the Speedway. They haven't raced in several years, and so it's largely thought of as just sort of being a time that's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but Wilbur Shaw was actually the guy that really fought mm-hmm. to find a new source of funding to, mm-hmm. to take the Speedway over. Mm-hmm. And I think Rickenbacker doesn't get enough credit for um, – holding out to find somebody who would purchase to agree to run the event instead yeah. of just doing the easy thing and sell it to some developer yeah. and you know so he he deserves more credit than he than i think i think a lot of people had the impression oh, he just let the place go to hell and yeah. it's like yeah it kind of did go to hell but in the worst economic crisis yeah, in, yeah, history. in the yeah, economic yeah. situation and all the resources we had were devoted to, to the war, the wartime you know, effort, defeating yeah. the enemy so was wilbur in uh, did was he sponsored by clabber girl like what was the affiliation with the Holmans? do you know there no i he wasn't sponsored by clabber girl i okay. i i think you know he networked around and he uh, I don't even know that he knew the Holmans before he found them, but it was sort of like an executive search, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like he Googled. Yeah. yeah. What about the character of Mike Boyle mm-hmm. comes to mind when you think about him? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, people have kind of, I, I, I think he was shadowy and his affiliation with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union uh, places uh, real doubt in your mind as to, what kind of racketeering might have been going on to get the kind of money he needed. Uh, so he, he's kind of this shadowy figure that, uh, as we discussed earlier, pref- uh, preferred to re- remain mysterious. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably because if you got to know too much about him, he might get in trouble. Right. So, but that's, you know, that's, uh, that's the extent of what I know about him. So if we're being honest, one of the things that's very appealing about Mike Boyle is the fact that he did, does have this entire other life in Chicago, and yeah. Ryan and I really enjoy characters that aren't traditional. Yeah. Um, some people may not look at that favorably, um, but I feel like that kind of character is necessary in, in exciting parts of history. Mm-hmm. Um Somebody like you who's very involved in the history of the sport, where does somebody like this stand for you? Bad boys are interesting. And so if you have this vanilla type personality, they might be a real stand-up person, but that isn't as interesting as someone that's kind of mysterious and there's intrigue around them. I think about the earliest days. In fact, I just wrote a book and uh, we're kind of getting it published. And it's of the earliest days. And everything that led up to the uh, construction and the brick paving of the Indy uh, Speedway. And that's as far as I go with it. But these characters, I mean, like Carl Fisher, you know, he gets kind of like just, I don't know, he he gets trivialized down to some black and white photos. I know he had a man of vision and all that stuff. But, I mean, these were people that they were womanizers. They were... You know, by today's standards, oh, my God, they, you know, <laughs> they'd be in all kinds of trouble. And uh, but 
it makes them interesting. Right. Doesn't right. mean that you hold them as the standard for behavior, but they're human beings, and they were subject to the foibles that all of us have, and and it probably was. And this is true, I suspect, with Boyle. It's you kind of need that kind of person to get what uh, what he ends up accomplishing done. Yeah, he wouldn't have been able to do it like you right. know. Patton in World War II, he was a real a-hole, but... He got it done. He got it done. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I was like, okay, you're the right guy for the time. Yeah. So we're sitting here in June 2020, and we're a couple months into a pandemic, and the economy has basically come to a screeching halt. Mm -hmm. And now racing is trying to stay somewhat in business by having races without fans, mm -hmm. doing online races, all sorts of things like that. And when Sean and I were deciding what we were going to look for for a story for this season we looked towards the economic crash back in the 20s mm -hmm. and then obviously the war and how racing really took a hit after that. And then we kind of mm -hmm. found the Mike Boyle story in that search. Oh, okay. What would you hope we take away from that era that maybe could be applied to today's problem? It's going to be tough. I've thought about what might happen. And I think what went on in that era sort of informs any prognostication any kind of like what do we need to look out for kind of thing I mean it taken to its extreme if everything dries up and I've done a lot of work on the business side of uh, racing uh, I, I was uh, VP at Indianapolis Motor Speedway I orchestrated this corporate sponsorship of the winning car in uh, 1997 and I, I just kind of know how companies react to, you know, what they're going to cut and so forth. And uh, yeah. when, you, when you look at the 30s and you see that the 500 was the only pillar, really, and then you had maybe three, four, six at the most races in a season, that was your IndyCar season. I mean, a season of three races, if you can, uh, IRL, if you can imagine, if you can imagine that. And um, so I don't know. I, 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 I think about corporations and how are they, once you, it's like data equity at a racetrack. Once you sort of get them out of the habit of uh, purchasing from you, whether it's a ticket or a side pod, um, well, they're on to other things. And winning them back is not going to be easy. Uh, in fact, they'll probably be a pretty disappointing yield. So I could see formula changes. You could go back to the junk formula, kind of. <laughs> you know, it's like, how can we set something up that just lets, you know, maybe manufacturers aren't, you know, kind of are, are out of it, you right. know. And um, so you have to open it up to more private interests mm -hmm. and have a more open rule book. I, I, I think all those things should are on the table. We just don't know yet. I mean, at the very least, the junk formula era is a cautionary tale as you look ahead to where, where things might go in the coming years. If we look at the 1930s post-stock market crash, worst depression that the country had been in, and we look at to potentially where we're headed now, mm -hmm. corporate sponsorships went away. Mm -hmm. And that kind of era opened itself to private money, people mm -hmm. that just have the funding on their own. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you open yourself up to characters like Mike Boyle. And mm -hmm. I think if there was a goal we had for something like this, it's to tell the tale that that's not always bad. 
because where there's that kind of funding, there's also character. And where there's character, there's a compelling story. Yeah. And that's why we feel Mike Boyle is actually something worth, I don't know if celebrating is the right word, but worth at least saying, hey, I think look he's at this. an asset to the sports history because he's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Continental's got the check. Meow. We also heard from Wayne Johnson, who is a, a former Chicago cop that was turned chief investigator for the Chicago Crime Commission. And uh, Sean, you found this guy on your own. How did you come across him? Well, going back to my, my roots when I used to work at the History Channel, you always look for books first. And he wrote a book called A History of Violence by Dr. Wayne A. Johnson. And I uh, admittedly have not read it, but just the title alone caught me. Uh, it's pretty cool. Just look at the book cover if you look. It's called uh, A History of Violence and it chronicles something like 1,400 murders in Chicago. So Wayne's having fun. Wayne's having a good time. Wayne is a fun guy to <laughs> hang out with. Um, so here's the best part. Uh, we drove out to Chicago uh, to uh, have lunch with Wayne because uh, he, he seemed like somebody who could really help us understand the Chicago scene of the 1920s and 1930s. And then we didn't actually interview him. Yeah, we made a trip to Chicago from Indy, and then we made a trip back to Indy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there was uh, some last minute uh, concerns that, that kind of changed that. But we did manage to get him. We had him on Zoom. So this obviously this one will sound different from our traditional podcast because, of course, it is a Zoom call. And uh, so it'll have all the fun that comes with that. But in any case, here he is. So Ryan and I went to Chicago. We wanted to shoot Chicago stuff. We weren't able to meet up with you just to do to a bunch of things. And am I correct that you have you have Chicago pizza with you? Yes. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Oh, you're breaking our Did hearts. Did you have some while you were here? No. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. I got a sandwich yeah. now. Ryan's yeah. got some stuff with him. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> we're not deep dish pizza people, actually. We, we tend to prefer more of a New York style. Okay. All right. Well, completely different food. <laughs> <laughs> so what's what's the pizza of choice over there? This, uh, the, the pizza choices here, as far as my taste goes, are the, this is Lou Mountain pizza. It's just good stuff uh, uh, cooked in a pan. And then there is some very good thin crust pizza. Huh. I like the thin crust too. So, but I'm, I'm gonna try and go more towards thin crust because of the less carbs. Oh. I'm trying to maintain my girlish figure during this pandemic. So, as you know, it's not easy. So I just heard a native Chicago guy yes. say he's going thin crust. Yeah. Are you going to be kicked yep. out of some Chicago union? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, unions are, are a great topic in Chicago. I mean, they are nationally, especially the era you, you gentlemen were looking at back in the 20s and 30s. But it started at, at the beginning of the 20th century, okay? Uh, unions were a very important cog to the working class. Um, probably the most prominent name at the very beginning was uh, Jim Colissimo, okay? Jim Colissimo is the guy who brought Johnny Torrio to Chicago from New York. Later, Johnny Torrio brought Al Capone. But Calissimo was actually, as a young man, was a street sweeper, and he established a street sweepers union. In my first book, there's a lot of talk about labor unions and the violence that kind of followed them uh, for years and years. 
and it went all the way up through the century. In the uh, 1997, I testified at labor hearings uh, that were developed by federal oversight uh, for the Laborers International Union. So, you know, they kept fighting that battle, trying to clean them up. The Teamsters saw a lot of this, but it, it just wasn't happening. And I testified on behalf of the Chicago Crime Commission in these labor hearings, which were really interesting. But when you backtrack in the old days, the conflict within labor unions very often wound up in murder. And a lot of it came on the heels of prohibition when uh, Al Capone knew he had to diversify because they knew the uh, Volstead Act was being repealed and they needed other sources of income. They had a big staff. He had, uh, at one time, Capone had 300 gunmen on the payroll. <laughs> so he had to find a way to pay these guys. You know? yeah. yeah, and yeah. and they looked to labor unions, but I know we want to circle back to Mike Boyle. So when it comes to sort of the Chicago gangster scene, you are one of the top guys at the point that you actually teach uh, about this history. Yes, yes. I've been teaching organized crime in a classroom setting for, uh, for many years, uh, based on my background and my work with the police department and with the Chicago Crime Commission. One of the reasons that Ryan and I find the Mike Boyle story pretty unique is that if you're going to talk about the Chicago mob scene or gangster scene of the 1920s and 1930s, it's always associated with things like liquor or drug racketeering. You know, it's it's Al Capone, it's Torrio, it's guys like that. It's it's uh, guys like Mike Boyle or, or labor unions aren't necessarily at the forefront of what we associate that era with in the way of racketeering. But you were telling us earlier that labor unions were a big part of that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. A big source of income. Uh, and while all the research I've done and, and uh, reports I've written and read and reviewed uh, I have to say, Mike Boyle was probably one of the wisest labor racketeers in the history of Chicago. And I say that for a specific reason. He survived. He lived into the <laughs> 1950s. And, and that's, a, that's a big deal. Yeah. And he, he kind of stayed out of that rhetoric at the time. I didn't see him in any crime reports. Uh, just an incidental reference, but I think a lot of that has to do with the specific union that he represented being the electrical workers, which is skilled labor, okay? And you look at other unions like the Teamsters and truck drivers and such that are non-skilled labor, and it runs a little more fast and loose. One thing with the electrical workers union, they have to be electricians. They have to know how to the electricians not that all of them might have been that good but you know it is what it is it's skilled labor and the you know you look at the things that he's done that that he went through i mean this guy was a hustler from the day he was born you can tell he grew up poor in a huge family in minnesota wound up in chicago got himself a job as an electrician 
and then within a couple of years was was a big part of the union he joined the union and within i think it was five years he was a business agent and that's pretty aggressive <laughs> yeah. you know it's pretty aggressive to get to that point and then what he did with the union how he was not intimidated by the city by shutting the electricity down in the city i just that's hilarious shutting or opening the bridges shutting off street lights he put the city in gridlock until he got what he wanted and it only took a couple of hours could you describe for us like how union racketeering works because honestly like other than what i've seen in movies i'm not really up to speed on it well union racket um racket have to do with leverage and bid rigging and a business agent like Mike Boyle was walking into a job site. They're building a new building. The electrical work's being done. And he finds out that not all your electricians are in our union. He goes, well, what, I'll t what I'll do for you is you give me $1,000 and I'll only make half of them join. Otherwise, I'm going to shut you down. And he can do that. And then pickets would come in, um, sluggers would come in, they'd set up a picket line. And then when these these non-union uh, electricians would try and get on the job site, they get their asses kicked. Huh. You know, so it, it got very violent very quickly. Right. So that's it. And then the bid rigging, just to cut to the quick, they'll have a guy from one of the families, whoever, whatever area that is. Yeah. He'll sit at the table during the planning for the union and they'll pay them their money right up, up front because what they can do is they can stop the electricians, they can stop delivery of all the uh, uh, lumber, right. concrete, so they can stop the carpenters. They just bring it to a halt. And, you know, that's, that's labor racketeering. So let's say it's 1928 and I'm having a building built in Chicago, what's Mike Boyle going to do? Well, Mike Boyle's going to be part of the planning process. He's going to look at your blueprints. He's going to make sure it's up to code. Okay. Uh, he's going to tell you how many people you should have working on this site. He, he's going to have some expertise. Mm -hmm. and, and then he's going to tell you that this will run smoothly as long as you work with all the different unions, because he's not the only guy you're going to have to deal with, sure. you know, and then, and then you've got the crooked politicians at city hall who are going to issue the permits, but that's usually works hand in hand back in that area with the gangsters, right. you know, they own city hall for the most part. So, so when, when it, you say that Mike Boyle's going to consult, is this, Real consulting or Mike Boyle beneficial consulting? Oh, it's going to be Mike Boyle beneficial. Okay. okay. And okay. he's going to have other experts. He's not going to go in and stay on a high rise and be the only one at that table. You'll be meeting with, he'll have his select contractors that he's going to allow to bid on this job. Okay. And they're going to go over all the plans and make sure it's up to speed. So if he and his guys say that, you know, to make this 30 story high rise, you're going to need 15 of my electricians. Um, even if you can get away with 10, you're going to use 15. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And not only that, you're going to buy your equipment from this provider. 
you're going to buy all your conduit and your wiring and your and your fixtures. You're going to, I know a guy. It's a, the greatest term in organized crime is, I know a guy. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that's going to work. Yeah. So if, if I don't fall in line with Mike Boyle and I don't allow him to have his way, what would happen? Nothing. Building wouldn't get built. The permits wouldn't come out. He'd call City Hall. City Hall would go, okay, Mike, yeah, we're not going to issue permits. They're not going to break ground. That's, that's how simple it is. Right. And this guy, like I say, he had a handle not only on the mob, he had a handle on City Hall. Okay. I'm sure he was well received by the international, you know. So unions across the company, they have a business model, and that's how they operate. Relative to the entire Chicago scene, whether it was in just sort of building up the city or within the idea of different rackets, where would you rate the IBEW? Well, I'd have to say with the technology, uh, the advancements in technology, the growth of the city that... IEBW had to be close at the top. You couldn't do anything without electricity, sure. without uh, proper electricity. Right. Um, so they had to be very powerful right. in the scheme of things. You know, you had you, your concrete workers, your your carpenters, your bricklayers, all very important too. But the electricians were right there with them. So how does Mike Boyle make his specific money? Well. He takes, uh, let's let's call them donations, <laughs> bribes. Okay. The whole umbrella comes into play. Right. Um, he's seen other people get in trouble by then, so he thinks he has this great defense. Although it was, uh, I have some notes too. Yeah, we'll get into the umbrella part, but but we'll ask that, we'll we'll ask that in a specific question. But go ahead and keep going about how he made money. Well, he was indicted for racketeering conspiracy, which is a broad spectrum, but restraint of trade, okay? That means you're kind of directing whoever's building this building on what contractors to work with. Uh, you're stopping them if they don't comply with your demands. And uh, he was proclaimed by an appeals court after this conviction that he was a blackmailer, a highwayman, a betrayer of la- uh, labor, and a leech on commerce. And he was convicted, and he did two months out of a one-year term, and he was pardoned by the President of the United States, so that says a lot about his clout. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and immediately upon his release, he's reelected to run the union. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that kind of says it all. Yeah, exactly. So, pretty fascinating stuff. So, the name Umbrella Mike. There are some other folks that we talk to in Indy who who don't care for that that nickname, but we love it. Um, (laughs) Where does the lore of that name come from? Well, apparently from his, uh, you know, you have to remember back in the day, um, 20s and 30s and such, that as much as 20% of city council in Chicago was in the liquor business. They didn't care too much for prohibition. I'll say, even though it's illegal? 
Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of business was run out of taverns. A lot of board operations were run out of taverns. And guys like Mike Boyle, I'm sure he was well, a like, so, Hold on. Uh, with, actual city, like city councilmen, government officials, they're yeah. doing their business in these speakeasy right. types. Well, a lot of mom taverns, they own distributorships, <laughs> they own breweries, you know. So when then Prohibition comes along, what are these guys thinking? Right. Yeah. Right. They didn't make a lot of money being aldermen. It was all about the power. Right. Okay. You know, so now you have Prohibition coming. Oh, my God. Now what are we going to do? <laughs> so it was interesting, but a lot of them ran their businesses and Boyle, uh, set up shop in a, in a bar on Madison Avenue. And that's when he would put his umbrella at the end of the bar. So he was nowhere near it. And I'm sure that the bartender was in and got his, his cut. But if someone would call him for a favor, say, Mike, I've got, I've got a son. I want him to be an electrician, but he needs a card. He needs his union card. Mike goes, well, I'll look into it. And he'll watch this guy walk to the end of the bar and he'll drop whatever the appropriate amount is at the time. Right. I mean, back then there was a lot of money floating around, so it might've been $50, it might've been $20, but he drops it in the umbrella and Mike takes care of it. But nobody can say, yeah, I saw this guy hand Mike money. Right. You know? So, and it worked for him, it worked for him. So the umbrella you know? was technically a way to be touchless with the money. Yeah, yeah, kind of weak, <laughs> kind of weak by today's standards. Yeah, it worked for him. All and right. who's looking though? Right. Who's looking? The police department was so corrupt. They had gangsters come to police headquarters and were given their whole criminal record, and it disappeared. It was never seen again. So, do you have any uh, favorite Mike Boyle stories? Anything that comes to mind? Well. You know, there's not a lot because he didn't come on the, the mob radar. He was that good. Um, I got to think, my favorite story is how's this guy get a presidential pardon? Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, he's a, a labor leader from Chicago. Right, right. You know, he's not the head of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He's not Jimmy Hoffa. Right. And yet he had inroads. But you have to keep in mind, too. You look at the presidents over the 20th century, and I have to think that every one of them had some kind of links to an organized crime group somewhere. I mean, we saw it with Truman, we saw we saw different pardons, we saw governors that were, were corrupted, especially in Illinois. And it, it, it just amazes me the only president that I ever saw that really stood up to organized crime, and I'll call it traditional organized crime, the mob or the mafia, right. was JFK. So yep. if we have our timelines right, he, he gets convicted. He's immediately pardoned by Woodrow Wilson. When he was indicted in 1915, that court case dragged out for five years. Right. So it was 1920. Um, when this finally came to fruition and he was sentenced to a year in jail and he only did two months. So I don't know what wheels were working, you know, during the course of the uh, court case. Uh, but 
he did two months in jail. I guess he had something. So yep. if we have our timelines right, he he gets convicted. He's immediately pardoned by Woodrow Wilson. And then it's almost as if he delivers a message not shortly after when he returns to Chicago. He shut, it, shut off 94,000 plus municipal streetlights. So the city went, uh, inner city, the mm -hmm. downtown went dark. And then he turned off all the traffic lights. So traffic was gridlocked. And then the Chicago River has divides downtown from the near north side. And of the 55 bridges along that river, he had 38 of them taken up so people couldn't cross. Oh my God. So they were trapped in a dark downtown. So <laughs> pretty amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Well, not only that, here, here's the, the kicker on that. He, he shut down the city's uh, power to the police department's phone lines. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that was the icing on the cake. So that's, that's a pretty good story. That sends a message. That's and, pretty interesting. And just to be clear, this is 1937. They're not on some computer grid. There's no group text where everybody can shut it down simultaneously. He had to plan with a bunch of guys around that area to all shut it down oh, simultaneous. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. And, and he d does it with a phone call. So they probably had a tree for, for things like this. And he called one guy and they called two and they called four. And, you know, and it happened pretty quick. And I doubt <laughs> if there was any hesitation on the behalf of his minions. Right. <laughs> so did that solve the dispute? Oh, yeah. Within, <laughs> with, within two hours and 40 minutes, okay, he called and had everything turned back on. So I'm assuming someone acquiesced to his demands. Although I don't know the specifics. I sure. couldn't find the specific demand right. that was being made. So, but good story. Powerful guy. Yeah. That's awesome. But you know what? I, I just didn't see a lot. This guy was able to keep his head down and not appear on the police bladders, you know. And he had to be in concert with the Chicago mob. Um, so he, he probably provided them with enough payoff to uh, keep me happy. Because a lot of the other ones weren't so lucky. Big Tim Murphy... Uh, was killed in his front doorway. He was a labor racketeer. The mob tried to step in. He resisted. They showed up at his house one day in a nice, quiet north side neighborhood. And he answers the door and two machine guns take him out. Pat Farrell was a Teamster um, uh, official and he was on vacation up in Wisconsin. And two guys went up there and killed him while he was on vacation with his family. So that's how it ended for a lot of the labor racketeers, but not Mike Boyle. Yeah. So um, to run a union like that, you have to have a you have to have a whole team of people that are on board with anything you're doing. If you're telling fifty to hundred people you're going to shut down the city at this time, they have to go with it. So, mm -hmm. what, was there a specific reputation you think he had among the union members? I mean, why would they be, if a guy's out here spending millions of dollars on car racing stuff, 
why are they okay with this? Well, they're probably scared to death. Yeah. It doesn't mean that people aren't getting their legs broken and things like that if they don't comply. Yeah. So Mike Boyle is spending a ton of money to go play race car at the Indy 500. And even if it wasn't car racing per se, I'd have to think that these kind of expensive hobbies wasn't uncommon for a lot of guys in that kind of scene. Right. Right. Not at all. A lot of the labor racketeers and gangsters, they had things that they enjoyed. Uh, they were big in, in the boxing game, usually in fixing fights, but they liked hanging around with fighters. Mm -hmm. If you're sort of a, a racketeer or some sort of mobster with, with the means to go out and get involved in boxing or horse racing or car racing, are you spending that money because you just enjoy the hobby or are you spending that money because it's hot? And so in some guys, it's in your best interest just to keep getting rid of money because then it's a lot harder to find it. Well, look at it this way. It's cash, okay? So they can spend it at will. A lot of their tax, they're not, um, or a lot of their money, they're not paying tax on. Right. So they can get a little fast and loose. And a lot of them are gamblers. And so as far as Mike Boyle having an IndyCar team, if Al Capone can own a racetrack, you know, it's not something that's necessarily going to be super eye-opening to people in the in the no, you know, no. In the industry of racketeering. Right. And like I say, with him flying under the radar, they go, Mike, who? Right. You know, because all they see, and, and even today, you see the media kind of tells you who's important, who's a main player, and who isn't. So once they put the name out there, and, and it could be the media that even gave Mike Boyle a nickname. They were famous for that, writing articles and taking gangsters and giving them nicknames. Right. You know, they used to do that. And a lot of times it would stick. A lot of times the gangsters may say, okay, I, I don't mind that or I don't like it. Because you'll never see a newspaper reporter from that era call Al Capone Scarface. Right. He uh, hated that moniker. Yeah. You know. So, and it's just how it works. That's how it works. So, do you find it odd that Mike Boyle's only real sponsor he ever had was the Boyle Valve Company, which didn't really make anything as far as we could tell? Yeah, it was probably on paper. You know, <laughs> it, was a, it was a way to clean money. Okay. And, you know, what a perfect cover for him. Yeah. So, he could take the money. I mean, you look at the fact that Mike Boyle made, what, $150 a week? Right, and within eight years, had had a, a, a wealth of three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you know, but uh, the IRS didn't seem to mind. Right, yeah. they didn't go after him for that. Yeah, you know, so. So with with paper trails in those days compared to say today, if you had something like the Boyle Valve Company, and it, if we want to argue that it was a shell company and it wasn't really doing anything, how easy would it be to wash money through something like that? Well, pretty easy, pretty easy. I mean, you'd have to have some paperwork, but you'd have to be under the threat of somebody looking. Yeah. If yeah. you had people within the IRS, because, you know, when I was at the Crime Commission, I worked with the IRS um, uh, criminal division people, and they were aggressive. I worked with the Labor Department. They had an investigative arm, and they were aggressive. But if nobody cares, 
or if they're on the payroll, you have no problems. Right. You don't even have to put up a good front. You just do what you want. You know. So don't think about it, guys. It's not worth it. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Waste your time. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, how common was that? As far as the idea of like a shell company, you know, was there? Oh, I think it's very common. Was there I think components? It's common today. What do you mean? <laughs> common today. We've never seen that in racing. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 still happening. Right. It's still happening. A lot of Mike Boyle's racing assets were in the name of other people. Like his car, for example, was famously sure. kind of registered sure. in the name of Cotton Henning, his main mechanic. One, I mean, we know, but why would somebody do this? But also, was that a common practice? I think it was a common practice because I think that if the IRS ever looked at him, they don't need that on record. So you hide that. You hide the assets. It's just common business practice. Yeah. You know. So we kind of came across this story by accident. We were looking for something unique or kind of inspiring from the 1920s or 1930s, you know, when we try to draw that analogy to maybe the era we're headed in today. And we came across this, which maybe isn't inspirational, but it's pretty darn cool. <laughs> Why is this era so heavily covered, do you think? Why are guys like Ryan and I into this? You know, it just it just sells. And part of it's the media. They they make it with movies and TV shows. They make it interesting. You know, who's going to die next? And, you know, is this guy ever going to get out or is he going to go to jail? So there's a lot of unanswered questions, you know. So it's, I don't know, people people buy the books. They watch the movies. And, and it's changed now, so it's not as interesting as it used to be because the groups are a little more subtle now. But um, but it sells. It's the bottom line. When we when we talk about this with people from indie, obviously there's people are a little reticent as to how much of this story should really be out there. Oh, okay. We think it's awesome. Um, well, you, you guys are blowing the lid off it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Uh, do you think this kind of stuff, even if you're not uh, an indie car fan per se, do you think these sort of stories are good for the sport? Well, you know, it's it's full disclosure. It's honesty, you know. And and look at all the other people in this era that were involved in the sport that weren't corrupt. So it's, it's a very small percentage. You know, what, are we going to hide it? Are we going to gloss it over? I just think he's a very interesting individual. That's uh, a very good article I sent. It was nicely done. Didn't get into any of this. But... <laughs> You know, what a, what a race career. What a team he built. So that's very impressive. That's all I can say with him. Very impressive that he, he only got a little bit of trouble comparatively in, in Chicago compared to other labor racketeers. He survived, and he won the Indy three times. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Meow, 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 meow. And our final guest in terms of setting up some background on Mike Boyle and 1920s era racing is John J. Binder. Now, much like Dwayne Johnson, uh, John is not a racing person. He's uh, more on the Chicago history side. Uh, he wrote a book called Al Capone's 
Beer Wars, uh, which is a fascinating look into not just Al Capone, but also just what that era was like. Uh, he has some familiarity both with Mike Boyle and, of course, just the Chicago scene of, of that era. So, Ryan, you have a lot to say about that interview. Yeah, I was really interested to see how it cut together in the final product. <laughs> I feel bad because you're in Chicago, which means we could be having some of the best deep dish pizza that's out there. Right. And yet now, now it's nothing. It is, it is what it is, as they say. <laughs> the most overused expression of all time. So Chicago, 1920s, 1930s, if we watch movies, we watch TV, there's a very specific archetype that kind of comes out of that. How representative was that of Chicago at the time? Well, Chicago organized crime um, during the Prohibition era, which starts in 1920, was multifaceted. There was a stuff that was around long before bootlegging was the province of the hoodlums. There was prostitution. There was gambling. There was narcotics. And there was labor racketeering. And then, you know, liquor, beer, liquor, alcohol gets added to that mix. Uh, eventually, some of the bootlegging gangs by the later 1920s start to get more heavily into labor racketeering as an initial revenue source for them. And some of them are getting more heavily into gambling. But before Prohibition, um, labor racketeering was the province of uh, guys that had nothing to do with bootlegging, and many of them held on for a number of years. It was their thing. So even well before what we would know is like the Volstead Act passing and everyone trying to bootleg liquor here and there, this idea of union rackets was going on for quite a while. Yeah, around Chicago, it uh, it seems to get going by about the 1890s and you know the early 1900s. Certainly, a guy like Mike Boyle is a big player in the um, electrical workers union. By I think 1906, he's kind of the uh, the, the, the czar of the uh, local of the IBEW, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. When you hear the name Mike Boyle, what comes to your mind? Uh, when I hear the name Mike Boyle, I think of um, you know, corrupt uh, union, corrupt labor practices um, of a guy who is running a union. Um, in Boyle's case, uh, you know, it, it wasn't just about Mike Boyle and his close friends. I mean, I think he was trying to get stuff for his union members, but he was also trying to, um, you know, get things from Mike Boyle, get money in Mike Boyle's pocket. Let's pretend that I'm an idiot. Um, how does that work? I have no clue how electrical racketeering would be a thing. Well, uh, let me just talk about, you know, union in general of that era and of later years. If I control a union, I can, one, uh, one of the goals is obviously to try and keep people out. Only my members can do that sort of work, whether it's electrical work or something, and raise the um, wage rates of the members. And of course, they pay dues, which goes to the officers. But there's a whole other side to it. If I am somewhat more corrupt, what I might do is use uh, my control of that union of that labor force as a club, for example, I could go to various contractors who want their, you know, their projects done, their buildings done, or their, you know, the electrical work and, you know, for the city or in their factory or something. And to one extent another, I could use this as a lever on them and say, oh yeah, you wanted that, uh, that done by um, November. Oh gee, um, we were just about to go on strike. Isn't that funny? <laughs> now, of course, if you give me $10,000, there won't be a strike. I think there'll be a strike. And I don't know when my guys are going to go you know, off the picket line and back to work. Right. You, you say you want that done by November? There you go. 
conversely, so let's say I'm a I'm I'm some sort of contractor. What happens if I don't do that? What happens if I if I hire all my buddies that, that I think know how to do electrical work? Yeah, one of the things is these um these unions back in the day, they're they're the workers they've organized are primarily unskilled. You know, they're doing things that you don't have to be a nuclear physicist or rocket scientist to understand where a lot of people can, you know, can do that sort of work and can do it proficiently. Well, if you try and go around me and bring in non-union labor, um, well, I'll be picketing. Um, I have friends in the political circles who uh, might give you trouble for that. Right. Um, police might look the other way. When I and um, you know certain goons I have an affiliation with, when they um, you know come in and uh, beat up some of the um, what we call strike breakers and give them dirty, you know, dirty names for what they're doing, uh, and cause damage to the construction site, it, it can get very nasty. All right, so let's let's go back a step. So when we think of people from that era, we think of Al Capone. We think of Johnny Torrio, guys like that, you know, guys that were from uh, more of the prohibitionized. Mike Boyle and the IBEW, relative to that grand scheme of what we know of Chicago, where did that reputation fall in line? Well, Mike Boyle, obviously, you know, as a union racketeer, predates the bootleggers. Capone doesn't come to Chicago until 1919. Mike Boyle is a big shot, you know, running the electrical workers basically roughly around 1906 or so. Um, uh, for a long time, those old-time union guys, and you know, they weren't squeaky clean. A lot of them were racketeers. They were they were coexisting with the bootlegging mobs. The Capone gang only starts to get heavily into um, labor unions, taking them over, and they themselves racketeering them, kicking out the guys who've been there previously. Around 1929 or so, as oh. an alternative source of revenue, yeah. when the economy goes bad and uh, bootlegging and such things aren't. Uh, aren't delivering the, uh, the money the way they used to. So if I'm going to believe everything I see in movies and TV, if, if Al Capone walks into my restaurant, I'm going to know that's Al Capone. There's going to be a palpable sense of fear or intimidation. What about Mike Boyle? Was that his reputation? Do people know who he was? Well, I think anybody around Chicago who had anything to do with the unions and had anything to do with electrical work by, by the 1920s, they knew who Mike Boyle was. And he wasn't just... You know, one more guy running one more union. He was very well known because his name, you know, appeared in the papers, both in terms of either things he was indicted for, and I think he took a conviction early on before 1920, or high, very high-profile things like some some help he gave, not to just the mayor of Chicago, but to uh, the governor of Illinois. I mean, surprise, surprise, Illinois had corrupt governors even back then. <laughs> one of them got his... Um, Got his um, his private parts caught in a vice, shall we say? Ah, um, okay. You know, in terms of some legal trouble. Okay. Uh, Mike Boyle is credited with helping fix the jury in that case, and the and the serving governor was not convicted. Ah. Okay. Caught. All right. Do you have any favorite Mike Boyle legends? Well, the, the standing story about Mike Boyle about why they called him Umbrella Mike was. That he had one of those old-fashioned, you'd still see him uh, in the 1960s, people used to carry before the, the tiny little tote umbrellas. These old-fashioned umbrellas, when you opened them, you know, they're about this wide, and you know, they're, 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 whatever, the, the fabric is black, and they're on a long um, you know, metal shaft with a wooden handle. The mic, didn't matter whether it was raining outside or not, would go places with his umbrella. 
and he'd hang his umbrella by the hand, or maybe he goes into a bar where there's the lip of the, you know, the wooden bar. He'd put his umbrella hanging by the handle, and you know the the people who were making payoffs to Mike Boyle would come, would walk by, and drop a, you know, a little wad of cash, some bills into the umbrella. That that's that that's that that's how we um, you know did the collections. Do you know anything about the story of Chicago going dark? Yeah, apparently Mike Boyle got his back up about um, how you know the union was being treated, and as a show of power, he then one night told all the IBEW guys to leave their job, including that they must have been running inside the city, the, um, the electrical lighting system, et cetera. So apparently you know, the, the whole city went dark. Uh, the, the city officials <laughs> responded very quickly from what I've seen and said, stop it, or you're, we're going to indict you for anything that happens in this darkness, like attempted any m- murders and stuff on the street, we'll indict you for murder or attempt murder. So Boyle decided, yeah, well, maybe maybe we better turn the lights back on because it's not going to end well for him. He can push individual contractors around, but it's, you know, when you consider, you know, the, the size of the various um, gorillas involved, shall we say, tough to push the city of Chicago around. Yeah, I'd imagine so. For argument's sake, even in today we see this a lot, but racing was Mike Boyle's kind of hobby. He was mm-hmm. passionate about cars, had fun. I'd have to think in an era like that where there's a lot of money coming through, but also that money is hot, so to speak. I have to think a lot of guys that had money coming through like this probably had very expensive hobbies. Um, that, that might be, yeah, that, that's probably fairly reasonable. Uh, a lot of the rackets guys were... Um, interested in sports, interested in, depending on what decade, interested in uh, boxing, interested in horse racing. Um, you can go on and on about Chicago hoodlums who had race horses. Um, if they owned the horse or, or you know, stable horses, uh, Capone himself early in his career around Chicago seemed to have uh, managed a, a fighter, a boxer or two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not unusual at all, partly because, you know, some of these hoodlums, they were making money off of gambling, which once upon a time was heavily related to betting on horse races and uh, and stuff like that. So, but, you know, it, and then when you get to Boyle's particular thing, he was maybe a, somewhat of a pioneer. Uh, you know, there's the old saying that horse racing is a sport of kings, right? Well, the automobile comes along, which is just horsepower. Well, horsepower for a guy like uh, Mike Boyle in the form of an engine and four wheels you know, is sort of his, you know, thing. Right. So it's no different than if he had, uh, you know, gotten got him got himself a, a stable of uh, first race stallions, right. rather than getting involved with um, Indy cars. So when Mike Boyle started racing, he had a sponsor, and that sponsor was the Boyle Valve Company. And mm-hmm. uh, there are a few folks that we've been working with who who are adamant that it was real and had companies. And to this day, we've never been able to find a valve produced by the Boyle Valve Company. Uh, it apparently is real. I found um, two related articles in the Chicago Tribune. One in 1922 is a, um, it's not the, the, the tiny little ad, you know, a housekeeper wants it. It's, it's a good size display ad for the uh, Boyle Valve Company in Chicago. It shows uh, one or two illustrations of their automotive valves. It gives the address of the factory on the north side of Chicago. That runs in 1922. I saw something else that's related to industry in Dallas. Talks about, you know, uh, corporate. It, it, it's an ad in the Chicago Tribune. It talks about businesses that have offices in Dallas. Boyle Valve 
company has an office in Dallas in 1929. So this is this is a um, a real entity, and sponsored various indie drivers and indie cars. It's not uncommon now for somebody to have a shell company that they run a couple of ads for to demonstrate that they're real, even if there isn't necessarily a product out there. Um, would that have been something that could have been common at the time? I, I don't think it would have been common at the time for people to create shell companies um, for one purpose or another. Um, yeah, if there are any uh, tax-related concerns, what you do is you're careful to try not put stuff in your own name because putting in your own name shows ownership and that, like Al Capone, can get you into trouble. But um, I don't think the Capone gang um, did much just focus on Capone in the way of creating shell corporations that don't really exist, okay. but just to put some name into something. Okay. So that became my next question is the idea of a shell company um, to sort of evade you know everything being uh, transparent that was that a common thing at the time are there any famous examples of shell companies not that i know no you you just wouldn't you know like if you're al capone or something you just be careful about to the extent possible of having stuff put in your name the deed to your house might be in your wife's name or your mother's name or something even though you bought the house it was your money right why would you do that why would you put something in somebody else's name well, by the 1920s, the IRS was um, convicting people of income tax evasion. There were some major test cases around Chicago where they locked out a bunch of guys that either worked directly for Capone or were Capone gang allies for income tax evasion. And then they worked their way up to eventually indicting Al Capone himself. What they did was they started with, I, I, I will not, not dwell in details, okay, Capone came to Chicago with no real, nothing to his name. But then over a very span of years, we can document all this, all these amounts he did spend through receipts. That money had to have come from somewhere during those years. That would have been income. He clearly didn't pay taxes on it. And if you, and if you have a bunch of property in your name, you started with nothing, but you have a, you know, whatever, $100,000 house, that's $100,000 that had to come from somewhere that would have, would have, should have been reported as income, on and on and on. So a lot of Mike Boyle's racing assets were in somebody else's name. So most famously, his lead mechanic, Cotton Henning, um, almost all of the car parts, the car itself, those were owned technically by Cotton, not Mike, even though he presumably was the guy funding it. Um, was that sort of practice commonplace for folks like this? Uh, people in the world of organized crime, yeah, would um, put you know their personal assets in um, you know to one extent another, often in the names of other people, a family member or something like that. So the whole reason we're doing this interview the whole reason this episode came up was that we were looking for cool stories from the 1920s and 1930s we were kind of looking for a rags to riches hero and instead what we found was mike boyle um who kind of made his name in a different way a racket to riches hero <laughs> uh said you wanted humor get out of the way <laughs> Why are people like ourselves so fascinated with this era and this culture? I've been asked that question a number of times in different ways. You know, it's that we're fascinated by the dark side, but that doesn't fully explain it. That's just the, the opening uh, comment there. Why are we fascinated by the dark side? Well, because most of us live quiet, normal, law-abiding, boring lives. At the end of whatever, busy 40, 60 hours a week, you know, being a um, just a, a very basic normal guy, if you want to come home and watch a movie about a honest 
boring accountant with a happy wife and family, three well-adjusted kids, or do you want to watch a movie about a seemingly normal accountant whose life is spinning out of control, who cheats on his wife, who has a gambling and drug habit, and comes home one night and slashes everybody in his family to death with a butcher knife. That was way too specific. We're interested in the stuff that's different than our normal lives. So people want to see movies and uh, read books about mobsters. And again, that to you, I think it's uh, George Bernard Shaw's adage, uh, nothing succeeds like success. The fact that some of these guys, even though they did illegal stuff and hurt and killed people, were very, very successful at what they did, some of them were, even more so makes it uh, fascinating. I'm finished. Song of your own. 